As we continue our series in Acts, this morning's reading is from Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more than... uh, Nevertheless... More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering, what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him, to its own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put aside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Thyrtis appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. 
He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Uh, for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from the house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Thanks so much, Gary. Uh, we always give Gary really long Bible passages just to test him out. Uh, and uh, it's been great to be with you these last couple of weeks uh, as we dive into this part of God's Word. There's an outline in the leaflet if that's of uh, use to you. Um, do, do take advantage of it. There's also a Q&A time uh, at the end. So as we go through, if there are things you, you think I'd really like to uh, dig into that or you think I just get it completely wrong, then uh, just uh, we'll, we'll have a time where you can just ask questions. We can bounce it around. Well, as we dive in, uh, let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who speaks clearly to us. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray you'll help us to understand it well, uh, to uh, reflect on its, what it is saying, but also its implications for our lives. Father, we pray you'll uh, be with us all as we seek to live for your glory and honour in this part of your world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what is God doing and not doing? Uh, last week we, we uh, dived into the first part of Acts chapter 5, the end of Acts chapter 4, and we saw God powerfully at work to protect his church. Remember Ananias and Sapphira struck down dead in order to um, make sure that God's church remains pure and hypocrisy just wasn't tolerated at that, that point. Uh, God strikes them both down. And yet uh, there are things that God doesn't do. Uh, so God protects his church in that way, but he doesn't protect his church from persecution. Why, why is that? I read an article from Christianity Today last year. Uh, it, the title of the um, article was, The 50 Countries Where It's Hardest to Follow Jesus. And North Korea has been uh, very much top of the list regularly. And in fact, in in this year, it was reported that uh, North Korea has jumped back up to the top of the list of places where uh, followers of Jesus are most persecuted. There's a guy called Tim Cho who's actually escaped from North Korea, a believer, and this is what he had to say. Uh, their aim, that is the government's aim, is to wipe out every Christian in the country. Uh, those arrested may be executed or imprisoned for life, facing near starvation, torture and sexual violence in the regime's prison camps. So we have this strange contrast where God is powerfully at work to protect the integrity of his people and intervenes by miraculous means so that people are actually killed um, in order to do that. And yet on the other hand, there are things that God is not doing to protect his people. 
he will let his people suffer and even die. So what? it's the question I think people often ask. Uh, what is going on in this space? Let's, let's jump into that passage that Gary uh, read for us because I think we're going to discover some of the answers to this question in that passage. Uh, when you get into Acts chapter 5, you can be uh, forgiven for feeling like it's very familiar territory. That's why I've got deja vu again. I know exactly what I'm saying there. That is, what we have is a scenario here in chapter 5 that feels very similar to Acts 3 and 4 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So you remember back in Acts 3, we have a cripple who's uh, healed after 40 years. It's in Solomon's colonnade in the temple. Uh, the religious authorities, they get grumpy, so they arrest uh, the apostles. They, they throw Peter, Peter and John, throw them in prison. Uh, they want them to stop teaching about Jesus. They warn them about that. The apostles refuse. They get released, and so they teach about Jesus. Now, that's pretty well what happens in Acts chapter 5, isn't it? And as you know, Acts is a pretty long book. We've got 28 chapters. A smart editor surely could have just dropped this bit out because we'd already covered basically the same ter territory, just, you know, the previous chapter. So why include it? Why is it here? There are some subtle differences. Um, you would have picked up those up as we went through. The opposition seems to be ratcheting up. I don't know if you, you caught that, verses 12 and 18. It's not just Peter and John who are arrested at this point, but all the apostles are arrested. They're all thrown in jail. It seems like the motivation is more sinister or irrational. You know, back in chapter 3, there are theological differences about the resurrection. That seems to be the dispute. But now, verse 17 of chapter 5, the Sadducees are filled with jealousy and rage. Right? We've jumped over the theological nuances. We're just angry and furious. Right? There's, there's an irrationality to that. Some of the Sanhedrin seem to be doing the trial back in chapter 4. But in verse 21 of chapter 5, the whole Sanhedrin turns up. The whole thing is just jumping up a level. And the opposition, uh, it just, it's hard to work out exactly what's driving them. Verse 33, they're furious and want to kill them. That's, that's what's going on. Right? And you sort of think, well, why? How do you get to that sort of point? And then we have the miraculous intervention, different to uh, chapter 4, verse 19. An angel of the Lord brings them out of prison. Last time they were just warned and let go. And this time, verse 40, they're flogged. Uh, last time they don't seem to have suffered personal violence as a result. So it's essentially the same, just a few sort of the next sort of stage or level up. So what are we being told by this repeated pattern with its variations? Let's uh, jump into that. Can I just say, it, one thing we're being told is if you talk about Jesus, it will attract trouble. Right? That was the case back in the first century. It is still the, day, the, the case today. That is, no matter how winsome and likeable and friendly and kind and generous and just lovely, which I know all of you are, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't matter uh, how many miraculous mi miracles you perform in your street this week, 
All right? Uh, you speak about Jesus. You speak about the Lord that everyone must bow the knee before. You speak about his death for sin because people are rebels against God. You speak about his resurrection and the fact that he now rules the universe and everyone needs to acknowledge that. You can't just live your own life on your own terms. You speak about the need for repentance from personal sin and it makes people angry. Doesn't it? It does. I mean, who of us likes being told that we're those sort of people? Did you like being told that when you became a Christian? I mean, I had a reaction to that before I realised the reality of it. And it's still the same. This week, I was talking to a young mum in her 30s, three, three young children, a couple at school, one preschool. She said she was in a conversation with some old school friends of hers, so people that she was in school with you know, 20 years ago now. And they got into a topic of discussion. She expressed a point of view that basically reflected her framework. She is one of the sweetest, lovely people I've ever met. right? And she said her friends got really angry at her. right? Really angry at her. And uh, she said, I wasn't sure what was going on. We've been friends for 20 years. And suddenly I start talking about my Christian conviction at this point. And they're just ropeable as a result of that. It's the nature of the gospel. It does that. Another bloke I was talking to a little while ago now, but mid-30s, in a uh, corporate work environment, and gets along really well with everyone in that context. But he said just lately, his boss has been making his life hell, absolute hell. And I said, what do you think that is? He said, well, he knows I'm a Christian and he's just started an affair with another person in the office. I've not said anything about it at all. <laughs> but just my very presence there actually makes him feel guilty. And so he just gets angry at me and he's making my life really difficult. The gospel and what goes with it, it just does produce reaction. Not the nice, gentle, generous, lovely, sweet, that bit we don't cop flack for. right? It's the bits where we start talking about Jesus. That bit is where we get into trouble. Okay, as much as we're clear. And can I say we should expect the opposition to grow? That, that's the pattern here in Acts, and I think it's the natural pattern as you go forward. Um, there's a book written by a guy called Steve McAlpine. It was one Christian book of the year back in, I think it was 2021. Its title is Being the Bad Guys. And what he tries to do is trace the way in which Christianity in Australia has gone through different phases in terms of the way people react. So, you know, back in the 1960s, right, a few of us... I was only a toddler at that point, but you know, a few of us remember that sort of era. You know, Christians were regarded as being just sexually oppressive in the sort of sexual liberation that was going on in, in Western countries. Then you got to the 80s, so that's the time when I was on campus, and Christians at that point were just treated like morons, right? You must be an idiot to believe in Jesus, right? It was just robust discussion, and that, that was fine. But here's the thing, now we're in the 2000s, 
Christians are regarded as being dangerous and actually evil in a way in which we've never been regarded before. And Christianity is not something to be tolerated. It's something to be silenced. You, more, if you're interested in that, just read Steve's book. It's really helpful in terms of thinking about how we operate in a world that's moved into a different sort of space for us as believers. Friends, that sort of opposition should not surprise us. Remember uh, Acts of the Apostles? It's the second volume in uh, Luke's uh, series. Yeah, Luke, Luke's Gospel, Acts of the Apostles, two, two com part compendium. Back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 51 to 53, listen to what Jesus says. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there'll be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, two against three. They'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother. It's estimated that in the 20th century, the number of martyrs, uh, Christian martyrs in that, that, that uh, century was more than the number who'd been killed for the name of Christ for the previous 1900 years. Yeah. There's, a, there's just that ratcheting up of opposition to the gospel as the gospel flourishes in the world. You understand both go together? As we've never seen more people becoming believers and never seen more opposition at the same time. It's just the, the gospel mechanics. And can I just say again, I don't care how likable you are. It helps if you're likable. Uh, but it doesn't stop you getting flack if you identify with Jesus. It can't. Just not possible. Let me move on. Uh, what we discover here too is about God's unstoppable word. Uh, that is, back in chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, and we see the apostles speaking boldly. We see signs and wonders in response to their prayer, basically. Uh, or the prayer that they pray that they might speak boldly. There might be signs and wonders. And you get to chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, at the start of our uh, reading today. And you see that God is answering those prayers, right? There are many signs and wonders, verse 12 and verse 14. More and more men and women are added to their number. When you get to chapter 6, verse 1, just on the other side of this reading, you'll get to that next week, we discover the number of disciples are increasing. So how does God, how does God accomplish this growth in the work of the gospel and people coming into the kingdom? Well, chapter 5, verse 20, the angel who's just brought them out of prison instructs them to go and stand in the temple courts and tell people about this new life. You go to verse 21, they taught the people. Verse 25, they were teaching the people. Even the Sanhedrin uh, complained because they filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You know, they, they actually have accurately picked it up. And after they're threatened and flogged at the end of what Gary read for us, verse 42, Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching 
and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Can I say uh, persecution and opposition will not stop God making sure his word goes out? It will not. That's what he's on about. He will superintend the growth of his gospel for his glory and honour. I am... Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with John Bunyan, you know, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? You know, probably, how many of you have heard of John Bunyan? Okay. Yeah, I thought most of you probably would. I, it was only this week that I um, looked up his trial. Uh, so he's a, you know, one of the reformers in the UK um, in the 1600s, and he was an open-air preacher, and uh, he did that at a time when you weren't allowed to be an open-air preacher, right? The only official preaching that could go on was within the walls of a church, of the Church of England, right? And if you tried to uh, uh, have preaching ministries and houses or out in the open air, you were in breach of law at that time. So Bunyan was arrested and brought on trial on the 3rd of October, 1660. just want to read to you some of the transcript of this trial. All right, he appeared before Judge Wingate. Here's how it goes. Mr. Bunyan, you stand before the court accused of persistent and willful transgression of the Conventicle Act, which is the act where you can't preach outside the walls of the Church of England. I hold in my hand, says Just Judge Wingate, the deposition of the witnesses against you. In each case, they have testified that they have observed you on numerous occasions conducting religious exercises in and near Bedford. Right? And basically says, so Mr Bunyan, what have you got to say about this? John Bunyan, the depositions speak the truth. I have no choice but to confess my guilt in my transgression of it. As true as these things are, I must affirm that I neither regret breaking the law nor repent of having broken it. Further, I must warn you that I have no intention in the future of conforming to it. Right? He's really trying to butter up the judge. You can tell, can't you? you know? Okay, Judge Wingate. It's obvious, sir, that you are a victim of deranged thinking. He goes, look, I do not wish to send you to prison, Mr. Bunyan. I'm aware of the poverty of your family. I believe that you have a little daughter who unfortunately was born blind. Is that so? John Bunyan, it is, my lord. So this is what Judge Wingate proposes. Very well, the decision of the court is this. Inasmuch as the accused has confessed his guilt, we shall follow a merciful and compassionate course of action. We shall release him on the condition that he swears solemnly to discontinue the convening of religious meetings and that he affixes his signature to such an oath prior to quitting the courtroom. That will be all, Mr. Bunyan. I hope not to see you here again. May we hear the next case. John Bunyan. <laughs> uh, my Lord, if I must, might just have another moment of the court's time. Judge Wingate, yes, well, but be quick about it. Bunyan, I cannot do what you've asked of me, my Lord. I cannot place my signature upon any document in which I promise henceforth not to preach. My calling to preach the gospel is from God, and he alone can make me discontinue what he has appointed me to do. As I have had no word from him, to that effect, I must continue to preach, and I shall continue to preach. 
Judge Wingate. Do you wish to go to prison? Bunyan. No, my lord. Few things that I would wish less. <laughs> Judge Wingate. Very well then, Mr Bunyan. The court will make one further attempt in good faith to accommodate what seems to be strongly held convictions on your part. And basically he repeats the offer. Bunyan. My lord, I appreciate the court's efforts to be, as you have put it, accommodating. But again, I must refuse your terms. Wingate. Since you reject this court's honest effort at compromise, you leave us no choice but to commit you to Bedford Jail for a period of six years, which turned out to be 12 years. If you manage to survive, most people died of typhoid in prison in those days. I should think that your experience will correct your thinking. If you fail to survive, that will be unfortunate. In any event, I strongly suspect that we have heard the last we will ever hear from Mr. John Bunyan. Where, where do you think he wrote Pilgrim's Progress? In prison. 1,300 editions of that book have been published up until the 1930s. God's word will not be stopped. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, Gamaliel, who's part of the Sanhedrin, he knows it, doesn't he? If this is from, if it's purely hum human, it'll fall to the ground. If it's from God, you're wasting your time. <laughs> totally wasting your time. You can persecute the gospel. You can persecute the Lord's people. But you cannot stop his word going out. It's interesting, isn't it? The chapter is full of the miraculous, many signs of wonders. The angel releases them in a miraculous way from prison. You would have thought it would be really simple for God just to make it so they didn't get beaten. Probably 39 lashes, popped backs, scarred for the rest of their life. But God doesn't. He doesn't do it. And it's because the miracles are all designed to help the word of the Lord go out that unstoppable word to actually take seed. And so they speak to the Sanhedrin. I do think Bunyan, surely, if he'd just been a bit more subtle, he could have slipped out of that trap. And you think, these apostles, come on guys, tread lightly. You know, We can slip out of here and keep doing the work. They preach to the Sanhedrin, the group that they think they're going to get the most opposition from, and then they keep preaching this same word once they're released. And not only that, they rejoice in their suffering. Verse 40, they're flogged. Again, most likely 39 lashes, you know, 40 less one. Backs just pulped mess. Verse 41, rejoice. Rejoice. Yeah, we decided we're going to put some T-shirts up for sale. 
uh, after the service. I'll be at the back. You can purchase On the front, I'm a Christian, right? On the back, you know, hit me. I enjoy it. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, what, what are you talking about here? Do you have to be a masochist to be a Christian? Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Because, why? They had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. Let me take it back to volume one again, Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil. Is that not the age we're in? Reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. It's not rejoicing in the suffering as if suffering is good. We don't think suffering is good. But rejoicing because we stand with Jesus in his suffering. Because we know will suffer as we go about preaching the good news that people might hear and respond because we know we have a relationship with God that will endure into eternity. We're secure forever. We know those things because God's plan is to draw people to himself. We know that this is the case and he draws people to himself by the speaking of his word, that word of life. Friends, can I say, uh, this is a chapter all about making sure that God's agenda is our agenda and making sure that, that we try and work that through as a community and as individuals. Uh, some of you will know the name Les Paul. Anyone tell me who he was? Come on, come on. Yeah, yeah, well done. He's a famous a guitarist and famous uh, for the uh, Les Paul electric guitar, a Gibson guitar. I don't expect everyone to know that, and uh, it's not that important, really. But um, in 1948, he was involved in a car accident, right? Sort of at an important point as his career was about to uh, take off. And in that car accident, his playing arm was shattered in three places. The doctors thought... He would never play the guitar again. In fact, they were contemplating amputating his arm. They didn't have to amputate his arm, but they did have to insert a metal plate into his elbow. So what he did was he instructed them to insert the metal plates into his elbow so that his arm would be fixed at 90 degrees because he wanted to be able to play his guitar. <laughs> that was the most important thing in his life that he was committed to doing because of that sort of joy. And he had a flourishing and quite extraordinary career. He knew where he wanted to go and he was committed to the task despite the pain and the inconvenience of it. Jesus is speaking to his disciples back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This is what he says to these apostles. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then we get to Acts chapter 5, and God 
miraculously intervenes to release them from jail so that they can be witnesses. These same people that Jesus has talked to back in Acts chapter 1. Acts 5.20, go, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. They're flogged, they're released, they're told not to speak about Jesus. Verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, does God promise to protect us, his church, from persecution or suffering for the gospel? No. Does he tell us we will be persecuted and suffer for the sake of taking the gospel out? Yes. Why? It's because God's big agenda, the most important thing that can possibly happen is that this gospel spreads to people so that they might have life. That's what's going on here. In Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, including Mount Barker. That is what God is doing. And friends, I just want to say, if this is God's agenda for us, let's make sure it's ours. Let's make sure it's ours. Yeah. Let me let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we uh, we thank you for just this clear picture of what your big goal is for the people of this world, and therefore for you, for us, your people. Father, we pray that, that um, we'll have clarity that you rule over heaven and earth, that you're a good God, and that the wonderful good thing that can happen is for people to experience life now and for eternity. And Father, we pray uh, that we as your people will absorb, own, and understand that you help us to work it out in our own lives, help us not to be... Uh, just within our own personalities to work out what it means for us to be your witnesses in this part of your world, to do it with winsomeness, uh, grace, and yet with clarity. Uh, Father, go before us, we pray, that we might honour you, and we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.